If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Recently, a news story broke about an extraordinary discovery excavated at Lindisfarne, the monastic site off the coast of Northumbria that started life in the mid-7th century. The find in question was a beautiful glass bead, which has been interpreted as a gaming piece. It's thought to date from around the period when Linda's farm was famously raided by Vikings in the late 8th century. The find was made during a research project on Lindisfarne, jointly conducted by Durham University and Dig Ventures, a crowd-funded archaeology social enterprise. David Petz, Associate Professor of Archaeology at Durham, is the lead archaeologist on the project, and Lisa Wilkins is co-founder of Dig Ventures. History Extra's content director, David Musgrove, called David and Lisa to find out more. He began by asking David Petz to sketch out the story of monastic activity on Lindisfarne. Yeah, um, Lindisfarne, as you said, it's, it's, it's a small, small island off, off the coast of Northumbria. It, it really, most people would have heard of it because of the Lindisfarne Gospels, which are these amazing 8th century Anglo-Saxon illuminated Bible. Um, and that came out of uh, the Anglo-Saxon monastery that was founded on the island in AD 635. It was founded by uh, the great Northumbrian king, King Oswald, who'd been, he grew up in Western Scotland and he probably converted to Christianity at Iona, which was a a really important Irish-Scottish monastery. And when he became king, he came over with some monks from Iona and yes, together they uh, established this new monastery on an island. And it seems like he was really trying to create his own Iona in his new kingdom. Um, and you've 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 written about this elsewhere, haven't you? That Iona, well, obviously on the west coast over in Scotland, and uh, and Lindisfarne on the east coast in Northumbria, but they both have that similarity of being an island within sight of the mainland. So there's a, there's a sense that um, that he was trying to 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 recreate what he'd seen on Iona. Yeah, and and the important thing about Lindisfarne is it's just over the water from Bamburgh, which was uh, is a major Anglo-Saxon palace site for the kings of Northumbria. So there's this nice kind of pair of a major ecclesiastical centre and a major power centre, and they look at each other across the water. Okay, so the the monastery is is founded in the in the mid seventh century, and how long are, are things going on uh, in Lindisfarne in a monastic sense for? 
well, so the, the, the monastery goes through the, the 7th century, the 8th century. Um, traditionally, the story is that the monks left in the mid-9th century because of Viking attacks, uh, and the, the monks kind of took the relics and moved around northern England, ending up in Durham at the turn of the millennium. But it, it's increasingly clear from the archaeology and a reanalysis of the sculpture that actually there's probably some kind of continuity of the monastery all the way through to the point when the Normans kind of refounded a priory on the island at the end of the 11th century. And that's kind of the one of the key points, isn't it, people? When you go to visit Lindisfarne, I've been to Lindisfarne, it's an amazing place to visit, and anyone listening to the podcast, you try and get there if, if you can, it's fantastic. But the, uh, the the remains that you see there now, and they are ruins of the, of the monastery they see there, they aren't the Anglo-Saxon ruins. No, yeah. If, if, as you said, if you go there now, you see this this nice, small, compact uh, medieval stone priory. But the uh, underlying Anglo-Saxon monastery it, it underlies that that monastery. But also, it would have been much, much bigger, and we, and we think it probably extended underneath almost all of the village and uh, much of the surrounding area. It would have been a, this vast, sprawling establishment, very different from a the compact medieval monastery. Okay, we'll come back to it in a second. But one of the interesting things that uh, that you've made uh, you've made clear is that uh, Lindisfarne, despite being pretty famous in uh, as, as an archaeological site and in the in the uh, ecclesiastical history of Britain, has been a little bit under researched in terms of archaeology. We didn't really know too much about this uh, this early monastery, I and mean, that's the the project that you've been involved with to to um, to try and understand uh, the nature of the Anglo-Saxon monastery and what it was like. And you've done it uh, in association with this uh, organisation called Dig Ventures. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about the uh, the way you've you've carried out this research and uh, and why you've uh, worked in the way you have. Yeah, the, the project is a joint project between myself at Durham University and, and Dig Ventures, who are a fantastic organisation who really can promote and, and develop community archaeology, essentially. Um, the, the project's been funded through, through crowdfunding and, and a little bit of money coming in through the university. And it's really important successful model for what we've been what we've been doing um trying to pull together and organize uh, excavations nowadays it's it's hard to find money a lot of the traditional sources which academics have used to fund their work have become increasingly difficult to access so we we kind of we have to look at creative ways in which we can do our our field work and i think increasingly realize that most archaeologists working in Britain appreciate that when we're doing archaeological work, we need to work with local communities. And you know, if we're not doing the archaeology for the wider general public, then really why are we actually doing it in the first place? And how hard is it to um, to, to get permission to do a research excavation now? I mean, there's an understanding that um, excavation is destruction and uh, and once you've, once you've dug something up, then uh, people down the track aren't going to be able to do the same, same again. Um, so that's been one of the uh, impediments, I guess, for, for research over the past few years. How hard is it to actually get permission to, to, to do an excavation these days? Well, there's really two kinds of permission you need. You need a permission from the landowner, obviously, because they don't want you digging holes in their land without permission. Uh, and also, if a site is a scheduled ancient monument, and that's a, that's a kind of a legal status, then you need to go to Historic England, who are the, the kind of national curators, and, and get 
permission through them. Now, we've been remarkably lucky with Lindisfarne, where actually the um, the area we wanted to dig in is entirely unprotected in terms of heritage. All we needed to do was get the landowner's permission, and, and the local landowners have been incredibly helpful in facilitating us doing the work. So we've had it, we've had it quite quite easy um but if you want to dig on a, on a scheduled site then there's obviously a, a, a heap more paperwork you have to have to battle through and if you want to do that you have to make a case that the research you do will kind of compensate for the destruction you do so there's always a balance so uh lisa um david and i were just talking about the uh, the model that um uh, that you've been working on to to carry out this research excavation on lindisfarne and the fact that it's crowdfunded and uh, and community-led so can you just give me a sense about um how you go about uh, setting up a dig ventures project and how important it is to get community involvement sure well um our projects come to us in different ways. Sometimes they're proposed to us by members of the general public, and sometimes someone like David will come to us with a fantastic site and a fantastic proposition. And in the case of Lindisfarne, um, you know, he'd been working there for several years and, and obviously has this really strong academic interest in the site, but uh, needed some money and, and a dig team. So for us, I mean, when you're thinking about working in crowdfunding, having a story to tell is the most important thing. What you need to really do is capture public interest in the work that you're doing, because really, as David was saying, it's for them. Um, and I think one of the things that certainly archaeologists have struggled with is is being able to tell those stories in a way that that people who aren't archaeologists feel that they can be a part of. So in setting up a Dig Ventures project, we always start um, from what's in it for the crowd. You know, we know what's in it for us as archaeologists. This is what we do. This is what we love doing. Um, and we want to excavate that site, but but how can we bring other people along with us? So in terms of the technical aspects, we have our own platform. So we're not using Kickstarter or Crowdfunder or anything like that. We we run it all through our own website and people can just come to Dig Ventures and see which projects we have running and which ones they feel motivated to be a part of. And you're looking for um, volunteer involvement as well as financial involvement? Yes, that's right. I mean, so it's it's a mixed model between crowdfunding, which is the financial aspect, and crowdsourcing, which is the um, experience aspect of it. And, you know, we are a uh, chartered institute for archaeologists registered organization. And that's really important to us because that's a quality control on the actual technical aspects of the, the fieldwork that we're delivering. So people come to us with sometimes no experience of archaeology whatsoever, but just this really intense fascination with the process and wanting to try it and be a part of it. Many of them have watched Time Team or have been inspired by, you know, mummies or some other form of archaeology. So um, they come to us and we train them on site. So our, our digs are very much training excavations and research-led excavations. Nothing that we do is the kind of archaeology that happens in advance of construction, and that's part of the planning process necessarily. Um, so uh, you've, you've been digging uh, in this really exciting place, uh, in this beautiful holy island. What have you found? Um, well, we've <laughs> we found all sorts of interesting things. Uh, in, in terms of our, our, our trenches, we can really divide our trench into, or into two areas. One area, we've got a, a cemetery, and we've got an awful lot of burials coming up out of that area. Um, on the other side of a trench, the side nearer the, the later priory, we've got um, a building 
Um, it's not a very impressive building. Anglo-Saxon structures could be quite ephemeral, but it's definitely there. And it seems to be associated with what we think is going to turn out to be an area of industry, metalworking, something like that. We've also got quite a lot of uh, animal bone and and, and uh, seashells and things coming up from that area. So it may also have been used for cooking or food, food preparation at, at some point. So that's the kind of main areas. Within that, there's all sorts of things coming up. With our cemetery area particularly, we've started getting quite a number of what we what are called name stones, which are small stone burial markers, essentially. Um, and they're of a form which are particularly distinct to Lindisfarne. And they're, they're Anglo-Saxon. And they're great because they, they have the names of people or bits of the names of people. They're, they're Sometimes they're a bit smashed up. But they're, they're rather nice little insights into early medieval burial practice. Uh, we're starting to get a range of early medieval finds. Obviously, the, the, the glass playing piece, but we're getting coins. We're getting personal items. We've got a lovely uh, a lovely pin. We've got spindle whirl. Um, yeah, all sorts of just bits of a typical, typical daily life and, and death in, in an Anglo-Saxon monastery. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Yeah, it's lovely. It's just lovely. It's only about, a, I don't know, two centimetres high. It looks almost like a kind of artisan boiled sweet. It's it's really, really delightful little thing. Um, and yeah, it's from a, uh, we think it's a, a playing piece from a board game. And, and we know that there's all sorts of board games played in the early medieval world. The Irish have them, the, the Welsh have them, the Anglo-Saxons have them, and, and the Vikings have them. And they're all kind of broadly similar. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And what have you got anything that uh, gives precise dating to, to what you're finding here? One of the challenges with dealing with the early medieval period is, particularly in, in, in the north, northern, northern half of Britain, is there's quite a low number of objects. We don't have 
pottery, uh, so you can't date things like that. Luckily, the coins do provide quite a good fix. So we've certainly got um, 8th and 9th century coins. Um, we're starting to use carbon-14 dating, uh, and that tells us that we've got burials of the Middle Anglo-Saxon period. And also some of the burials are a little bit later, so they, they can go on into the, into the Norman period. So they're, they're the two main types of dating evidence we've got at the moment. And then, of course, we just look at parallels for our finds from other excavated sites, and that gives us a way of kind of taking bearings and, and working out what the dates are likely to be. Okay, but, um, but you... You're not going back to the to the start of the monastic um, settlement here. Then, in the mid seventh century, then you haven't found anything that you would you would put there. Not yet. I mean, obviously, the the, the, the way 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 archaeology works is is we we start at the top, so we're working our through the more more recent layers. Um, anything dating to the earliest period is going to be beneath where we are now. But there's no reason to think that as we go down, as we develop the project over the kind of coming years, that we won't be getting down into those very early layers. And do we know where the earliest um, church is likely to be? In in terms of kind of parallels from other other sites like this, it's most likely that the ecclesiastical focus of the site has all is where the later churches are. So um, on 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 Holy Island, we have a big priory church for the the monastery, and a, and a parish church. Uh, those two are actually laid out in a line, but they've got the same axis, which is typical of Anglo-Saxon church planning. So we suspect that there's probably they are they rep, the later structures replicate the positions of the earlier Anglo-Saxon structures. So I think the churches probably underlie the earliest bits, probably underlie the later churches. Thank you. I guess we should at this point, and um, you may not want to answer this, but we, we're, you're using the terms Anglo-Saxon here uh, and, and also early medieval, two terms that uh, for some academics are interchangeable, but there is a, a debate about whether Anglo-Saxon is a, uh, an acceptable term to be using these days. Do you have a, a view on that? Yeah, there, this is a, it's, it's a, a debate which particularly this year has become quite quite uh, uh, timely. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've been using Anglo-Saxon just now i must admit it's out of habits i've 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 you know did my university degree over the last nearly 30 years ago um and when i was a student we talked about the anglo-saxons we write about the anglo-saxons and it's a term which is widely understood by the general public however increasingly and i, and I think very fairly people uh, particularly uh on in the states are realizing that the term Anglo-Saxon has been used in other ways, often which has kind of racial connotations. So it's something which archaeology and early medieval studies are increasingly chewing over, and there's quite a, an internal fierce debate about whether it's a term we should still be using. I'm I'm trying to to stop using it, but as I said, it's it's a it's a habit, and I think this is one of the problems. It's people are so used to using it, and it's hard to find satisfactory alternate terms but yes it's something i think we need to at least be aware aware of the connotations and problems of using a phrase like that of course and so we're using it advisedly here and with knowledge of the debate um uh, yeah. and and the fact that early medieval as a term probably doesn't mean that much to a lot of people yeah this is one of the troubles is a lot of people and you, you talk about early medieval and they think oh you mean the normans and it, it's trying to find a, a term which people understand for this period 
after the Romans and before the Norman conquest. You know, in, in 10 years ago, we were spending all our time trying to persuade people to stop calling it the Dark Ages, which I think we've largely, largely won that battle. But it's, 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 there's a big difference between the terms we use within the profession, the specialist terms and the terms which are understood by the wider public. Obviously, in uh, in northern northern England and in southern Scotland, things are even more complicated because we're in a world where we don't just have the the, the Northumbrians, but we've got the the British kingdoms of places like Strathclyde. We have Irish kingdoms in western Scotland. We have the Picts. Central Britain is quite a multicultural place, so there's an awful lot of different cultural groups all swimming around, all interacting, all engaging with places like Lindisfarne. So it's yeah, it's we'll have to be a bit careful with terminology. Yeah, complicated, and all these groups are engaging in uh, in lesser or greater ways with Christianity as well. And Christianity, of course, is is the is the story here. Um, um, so this monastic community that that you're um, you're finding here um, from the from the late eighth century uh, thereabouts, so the sort of things you're finding. What's so it's a it's a busy place. It's a bustling place. There's a lot going on. It's not you kind of think of, of monks and, and monasticism as people um, just sat there, you know, cogitating and, and perhaps growing some Swedes or something. But you're you're suggesting that there's a, there's a lot more going on than that. Yeah, in in early medieval Northumbria, um, it's basically a society without towns. There's no urban centres, um, but it's the monasteries which are really the biggest, most bustling places. The places with the largest permanent populations, because the kings themselves were generally moving around with their courts, and uh, not having one single permanent centre. So it's really the monasteries which are the are, are the places where we have monks, we have uh, visitors, you have pilgrims, we have kings coming to visit. They're big, bustling places. And somewhere like Lindisfarne, as I said, we're just across the water from the major royal palace site of Bambra. Um, the the sea lanes are incredibly important. You know, in, in, in early medieval society, we know that uh, people are going down to Europe. They're, they're using the sea lanes to go south. And also they're using the sea lanes to go up north into, into Pickland. Um, so it's it's actually quite a, an important place in the landscape. It's a place where people are, are passing through, visiting, um, and we think exchanging as well. So does that slightly contradict? You've got this idea of um, uh, Saint Cuthbert is is famously associated um, with the island, and one of the stories about him is he he moves off to this this smaller island, um, uh, Saint Cuthbert's Island, which is just off the edge of of, of the of the main island, and uh, and uh, to live the life of a hermit in some way. So. Super busy in one place, and then someone's trying to live an unworldly existence not far away. How does how do, how do the two there come together? Yeah, there's always this tension in, in monasticism between the communal life and and, and the life of the hermit. Um, and yeah, come Cuthbert goes. Yeah, he spends time on two different islands: St Cuthbert's Island, which is just off Lindisfarne, and then he goes out to Inner Farn, which is about three or four miles uh, further out to sea. Uh, uh, yeah, and and they're kind of paradoxical sites because St Cuthbert's Island. Is yes, it's a tidal island, but you know, when the tide's out, it only takes two minutes to walk over there. And actually, it was right next to what we think was the original route of the causeway to the mainland. It was overlooked by the monastery. They, the, any hermit on the island, would always have been observed. People would always be able to see them. People coming to the monastery would have walked straight past the uh, straight past the island itself. And we know from writings about Cuthbert that when he's on Inner Farn, he got so fed up with people constantly coming over to visit him that he actually had to build up the walls of his walls walls of his cell so he wasn't so visible. So yeah, even even when he's out on a on a kind of rocky island in the North Sea, he was still getting badgered and visited. And I think these these 
this is the thing about hermits. They're seen as they're seen as holy. They're seen as having a special line to God. So people want to, want to communicate with them. People want to actually use them as intercessors. People want to get prayers. People want to engage with them. And there's this constant struggle between them trying to find isolation and other people trying to find them. Um, so then, going back to uh, to the to the things you found, you found this uh, this beautiful. Um, blue glass gaming piece which just looks so fantastic it's been around the internet and most people have will have seen the images of it um just w- what is that what, what does that tell us yeah it's a love it's just lovely it's only about a, kind of, i don't know two centimeters high it looks almost like a kind of artisan boiled sweet it's it's really really delightful little thing um and yeah it's from a uh, we think it's a, a playing piece from a board game and, and we know that there's all sorts of board games played in the early medieval world. The Irish have them, the, the Welsh have them, the Anglo-Saxons have them, and, and the Vikings have them. And they're all kind of broadly similar. You find quite a lot of playing pieces for these kind of games, um, but they tend to be fairly simple things made out of worked bone or maybe a little bit of jet or a little bit of amber. The one we found is made out of glass it's decorated glass it's it's got these trails of white glass wrapped around the the blue core it's got little white beads on top of it it's it's very much at the the top end of this this these kind of uh, objects and it it points to a a shared culture around the north sea because you know the closest we have parallels from places like uh, the Netherlands and Germany and Scandinavia and probably the closest parallel is actually from a Pictish hill fort up, up near Perth but it, the, the similarity between them suggests that there is this kind of shared elite culture so whether we're talking Vikings or Anglo-Saxons or, or, or Picts and they are sharing the same kind of interests and pastimes um, and that people who have that kind of social rank were also present on Lindisfarne and the, uh, the one of the news stories um, that uh, that came out about this suggested that it's a, a gaming piece from the Viking board game, and I'm going to imp- mispronounce this, Hnefatafal? I don't know if that's correct. Yeah, nearly. Hnefatafal, I think it is. Everyone pronounces it slightly differently. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Hnefatafal is the version of the game that people are probably most familiar with. If people have been to things like the Viking Centre in York or kind of watched the vikings on television they'll they'll be aware of it but it's just the whole there's a whole series of other of other what are called taffle games and taffle just literally means table or board so yeah they're all kind of subtle variations of of a basic kind of board game yeah our our, our, our example we, we, we can't be certain but it's viking as in made or used by a viking obviously there was a viking presence at lindisarne occasionally um but it's certainly viking age viking period it, it fits into that, that that chronological bracket yeah so as you're saying there's there's a lot of cross communication and people um traveling around this this you know this part of the world not necessarily just with the sole intent of uh, of raiding and pillaging and that doesn't that doesn't immediately make a link to to the to the famous viking raids of uh, of 793 that uh, that are attested in the in the uh, documents here does it yeah, absolutely. We we know that the Kingdom of Northumbria was was embedded into this this North Sea trading world. So, excavations at York have shown that Northumbria, because York was part of Northumbria, were were trading with with Flanders and, and Northern Germany and places like France, and all sorts of goods were being traded 
um, you know, on reasonably substantial basis. Um, and, I, and we think that places like Lindisfarne are, are plugged into that wider network of exchange. And there's nothing that you've found in your excavation so far that is indicative of, of an actual raiding process. There's no burnt lair or, or, or skeletal remains with, uh, with injuries or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, we, we, we've got nothing which, which says which says Viking raid. And, and to be honest, it's, it's very difficult to know what we would find, which would be absolutely definitive, because in a world where most buildings are built out of wood uh, and the thatched things burn down all the time, um, equally, people are living, it's a rough old tough time. It's not just Vikings attacking, the Anglo-Saxons are fighting each other, the early medieval people are fighting each other. We know the place is raided by the Scots. Um, so even if we did find somebody with a, with a massive sword injury to the head, we wouldn't know whether it's a Viking sword or a Scottish sword. Yeah. So really, one of these name stones to say something like, uh, this man was killed by a Viking, that would, that would help yeah, to Yeah, we need something very, very explicit. So, <laughs> yes. um, it's, so it's, it sounds like it's probably a little too early for where you've got to in your stratigraphy, but you've not found anything that would speak of the, uh, of the scriptorium, the place where these fabulous gospels that you mentioned earlier would have been made, because they, they would have been perhaps a little bit earlier than the timescale you've got to? Yeah, I mean, in, in broadly the same, at the earlier end of, of, of the period we're looking at, yeah, I mean, we we know that there's potential from other other sites have found places where parchment have been made. There's a wonderful excavation up in Scotland called Port Mahomac where they found a parchment making workshop. Um, we know that you know other Anglo-Saxon monasteries, people have found things like styli, the little kind of pens for for writing. Um, so we we found nothing definitive yet. Obviously, it's you know that would be our our dream is to find something directly connected to the Lindisfarne Gospels. One of the things we're hoping for the next couple of years is really at the end of our last season we we started to find what looks like it could be an industrial metalworking area so i mean it's always a little bit cautious about making predictions about what we're going to find but it would be lovely to find evidence for production of things like high status copper alloy work we know the gospels would originally have had a a decorated cover so evidence for production of kind of fittings and and that kind of thing which might have gone on on a book cover would be would be on my bucket list at the moment. Sure. Um, and just a couple other things that uh, that come out of, of some of your other research on on the island. You, you've mentioned in, in things you've written about uh, this idea of a pilgrimage circuit uh, around the monastery and around the island. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, we, we, there's been work done by uh, another archaeological project on the island funded by the Lottery Fund, and they did a lot of work up on the Hjuf, which is the, the name for a rocky crag which overlooks uh, the main part of the monastery. And they have found uh, traces of what could be a church. There's some burials up there, and there's certainly at least two bases for crosses, which are probably Anglo-Saxon crosses. And that kind of links into some of the ways in which certainly particularly Irish monasteries are laid out with with a, a kind of system of, of crosses and outside altars and, and locations where people could stop to pray. And it's possible that we've got something similar going on here. Um, we have, you know, par- our best parallels for an archaeological site are with, are with Iona. We know from Iona, but as well as the monastery itself, they have hermitages and crosses beyond the confines of the monastery and it may well be that people were making either individual circuits around this these this, this landscape of holy sites or at certain times of the year there were more formalized liturgical processions and ceremonies which involved this kind of movement round the landscape 
And there's also a, a reference to curse stones as part of this. What would they have been? Yeah, we uh, in this is something particularly found in in more the Irish and Scottish traditions. These 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 stones which were used for. Um, you, you just twisted them uh, often on a cross space, and they would kind of leave these 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 hollow marks. And the idea that you would, if you twisted them in the right direction, they'd be used to make a curse on somebody you, you didn't like. And there's some intriguing kind of uh, impressions uh, on one of the cross spaces from Lindisfarne. And I mean, I've I've speculated that that might be what we're seeing seeing here because we do have these these, these strong links between. Lindisfarne Christianity and what's going on further west. Okay, so you're sort of describing a, quite a busy uh, whole island here, then, with 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 you know quite a lot going on across across the whole place. And you've got an interesting story that you mentioned um, uh, about uh, an entire wooden church being moved at one point. T- tell me about how how that happened. Yeah, this this happens at the point when after after the Viking raids in in, in the mid ninth century, some of the monks seem to move from Lindisfarne and and they take uh, a lot of the relics with them. They they take obviously the relics of Cuthbert, but also on the island it seems that one of the very early wooden churches associated or, or at least associated in their minds by by the mid ninth century with uh, one of the earliest abbots on the island, and that seems to have been preserved. And they actually physically, or, or, or late, later writings claim that they physically dismantle it and move the whole thing. And I think that's quite important because it kind of suggests that they have this almost their own sense of managing their own cultural heritage. Actually, they've preserved this building and it's almost become a shrine in its own right. And it, because it's associated with some of the early, the earliest phases of monastery of the monastery there, so taking it with them it's it's, it's a relic it's it's a it's a it's a witness of those earliest phases of christianity they also claim to have taken one of the early stone crosses as well so they're actually kind of to a certain extent dismantling some of the symbolic infrastructure of the monastery and when the when the core of the monastery leaves they take these things with them Okay, fascinating. Now, tell me this. So, um, you've had a, a marvelous experience of, of digging, and uh, and presumably you stay on on the island when you're when you're digging, and 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 really get to get a good sense of, of what it's like. If you are, um, if you're just uh, a, an average visitor coming along and wanting to have a look at Lindisfarne and uh, and explore it, what would what would you suggest that that you do? Where where what's the best thing to do to to really get a, a sense of the uh, of the history of the place? I think I think there's, there's three things. Have a look at the village itself. Uh, you know, there's there's the the pro- remains of the priory and, and the visitor centre, and there's also a another visitor centre run by the run by the village itself, uh, and they they wonderful opportunities to find out about about the history of, of the Anglo-Saxon sites. It's worth walking out to the castle, which is the other side of the harbour, which is a it's a not a medieval castle. It's actually post-medieval, and then in in the early 20th century, it was. Uh, converted in the arts and crafts style to be a, to be a home and it's just been restored by the national trust and that's really nice but also if you want to get a real flavor of the island head out to the north side away from all the tourists uh, and actually if you can find them in the in the in the dunes on the north side of the island there are traces of an early medieval farmstead at a site called Green Shield. And once you get on the north side of the island, you've got the you've got the seals, you've got the seabirds, you've got the wind, and it's yeah, far far fewer visitors. So that's probably a bit more of a yeah, kind of touchy-feely experience side of the island. One of the greatest things I found when I went there was uh, just going towards St Cuthbert's Island and just um, and just standing there and listening, and I could hear seals um, barking around in the uh, in the in the shallows nearby, which gives a real sense of uh, of, of, the, of the natural world there. So um, I imagine. 
going there to dig must be quite a is that a different experience to digging in in other excavations um does it does it does it change the way that you uh, approach it in any way yeah, I mean, being on the island, I mean, it's, it's an amazing opportunity to actually stay on the island for kind of weeks at a time. Um, obviously, because we're working with the tides, it means we have to kind of logistical, making sure that our workforce can get to get to the site every day because not, not everyone stays on the island. But also it means that there's times when, I mean, it's a very it's a busy tourist place, so there's times when you're overwhelmed by visitors, but other times when the tide goes, comes in, at the visitors disappear and it can be the middle of a day at the weekend and there's virtually no one there so it's it's it's, it's a very strange place to work you to get these kind of tides of visitors coming through and then just suddenly disappearing and leaving you kind of much much more to yourself okay finally what's what's next so you you've got some more seasons of excavation planned i, I think yeah we, we're, we're going to go back we're going to keep on keep on digging we Every year, with the stuff we're finding, as we get more into the early medieval stuff, is it's more exciting. The range of finds we're, we're getting. Uh, I mean, this year it was all all really nice stuff. So I said we're on the edge of a possible workshop area, so that's that's on going to be one of our priorities. But we've got all the human remains. We you know we're starting analysing them here down in Durham, and nowadays we can not just say how old they were and what gender they were. We can start saying things like look at diet we can look at disease we can look at even where they're coming from so we're going to start developing some of that analytical side as well so yeah lots to look forward to um so uh, so finally just can you tell me uh, where can we find out more about uh, about the excavation and the and the research project well we have a, a website through dig ventures so the easiest way to find it is just to google dig ventures and lindisfarne and they will find the web page and there's lots of pictures of the excavation uh, all the social media feeds, lots of information about what we're doing. And when we're out on site during the field season, we're constantly updating it kind of live as we go so people can follow us in real time. That was David Petz of Durham University and Lisa Wilkins of Dig Ventures. As David said, you can find out more about the project at digventures.com forward slash Lindisfarne. There's also a wealth of content about Lindisfarne and the Anglo-Saxons and Vikings in general at our website. We've collected a load of material together for you at historyextra.com forward slash Lindisfarne. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Friday when Francesca Wade will be discussing radical women in interwar Britain. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.